I wasn't someone who believed in incrementalism, but I understand the value thereof. I've learned that incrementalism, if we're going in the right direction, will get you there eventually. That helps me with my resolve to continue to try to fight to get things done. From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Now here's your host, Megan Hayes. A self-described country boy from South Carolina, Bakari Sellers is the son of educators, Gwendolyn Sellers, and civil rights activist, Cleveland Sellers. He grew up under the influence of legends of the civil rights movement, including Julian Bond and Stokely Carmichael. At 22 years old, he made history when, after graduating from Morehouse College and while enrolled in law school at the University of South Carolina, he became the youngest member of the South Carolina State Legislature and the youngest African-American elected official in the nation. In 2014, he won the Democratic nomination for lieutenant governor in South Carolina. Bakari Sellers has worked for Congressman James Clyburn and former Atlanta Mayor Shirley Franklin, and he served on President Barack Obama's South Carolina Steering Committee during the 2008 election. He has been named to Time Magazine's 40 Under 40 in 2010, as well as the Route 100 list of the nation's most influential African Americans in 2014. Bakari Sellers currently practices law in Columbia, South Carolina, where he heads strategic communications and public affairs team for the Strom Law Firm, LLC, and has recently added diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting to the list of his services offered. He has provided political and social commentary and analysis on many major national news outlets and is a prominent political contributor for CNN. His memoir, My Vanishing Country, was published last May, and he is a New York Times bestseller. Bakari Sellers is on our campus as the featured speaker for App State's 37th annual celebration of the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Bakari Sellers, welcome to Appalachian State University and welcome to Sound Effect. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. That was a great intro. Well, thank you. Yeah. And I think the weather's a little better than the last time we tried to bring you here. Yes, so. <laughs> that was, it, it It snowed and snowed and snowed. And I, although I am a country boy, the snow is not my friend. So I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that it is clear out there. Although it's really hilly out there. I've got a workout walking around this campus. Yes, we, um, we're, we're, we call it the high country. And I think you say you're from the low country. I'm from so. the low country. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank so, you for having me. Well, we're really glad to have you here. And I'd like to begin by asking you to share a bit more about your background. In your book, you describe how in many ways you are defined by the Orangeburg Massacre, the first deadly confrontation between university students and law enforcement in the United States history. Can you talk about the influence of this event on um, just the decisions you made early in your career? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I look at it as being the most important day of my life, truly. And the way that I look at life socially, culturally, politically is through the lens of the movement. And um, that speaks to me as probably the most impactful day um, you know, my father was shot and, and imprisoned and you had three people who lost their lives. Um, but between that and the Charleston massacre and, and 2015, where I lost my good friend Clem, um, to, you know, a racist killer and Dylan Roof murdering nine people in a church. I say my life has been bookended by tragedy and I highlight those two tragedies as, um, a point that I still live with that pain, but try to um, you know, truly understand and dissect the role that race plays in society um, and continue to live for those who um, who can't live uh, for themselves any longer, whose lives were cut short because of that type of violence. And um, it's a it's a heavy burden to bear, but one I carry with pride, I believe. Do you see differences between um, how you respond or how you responded to that influence in your life when you were in your 20s and now? No, I mean, I, 
the the answer to the question is no because it is so it's always so heavy mm-hmm. um and i've felt that heaviness in my heart since you know when we first started going over to south carolina state on february 8th and my dad would pick me up from school and we'd go to the memorials um you know it's just a really really heavy feeling and so i don't know if there's any difference in you know the last 10 years or 20 years of my life in the way that i carry that history with me but i think that i utilize it um i i said in the book that i think that i have a a larger chip on my shoulder than my father does from from those incidents you know i i am reminded that he could have lashed out with you know righteous anger but he chose to believe in what lincoln calls the better angels of our nature and um as i as i go through this maturation process i try to let go of some of that unburden unburden myself is probably the better term mm-hmm. uh, of some of that um uh not quite hate that i have but resentment that i have and and live a freer life it's just difficult mm-hmm. So it's certainly no secret that you're considered a rising star in the <laughs> Democratic Party. And I'd like to ask you about your experience in reaching across the aisle to affect change within an established political system. I would imagine that this work takes time and patience. Um, is that frustrating or was that frustrating for you or was it rewarding or maybe some of both? No, it wasn't frustrating. I mean, I, I think that when you get into politics, you have to have some element. First of all, you can't be an introvert. Right. <laughs> That's not the job, not the career path for you. Um, but there was some feeling of reward even from um, building the relationships. I'm, I'm someone who always am reminded that the most valuable currency we have is is relationships. It's, mm-hmm. it's superior to the dollar. The dollar is a close second, but it, it's relationships are the most valuable. And you learn how to meet people where they are, and you learn how to build those relationships with help, which help you become effective when you're trying to legislate. And when you're, you know, a young black Democrat, and you're a young black Democrat in in South Carolina, um, you are compelled to find ways in which you can find some common ground to be successful. So it's a necessity. And you know, when I first got elected in 2006, 2000, and, which was pre Barack Obama, you had very small Republican majorities. Um, by the time I left in 2014, you had super majorities where they didn't need you for anything. And so if there was any frustration, it was probably that frustration because it's easy to be bipartisan and go and get four votes. Right. It's a different animal to go get 34 votes. Right. Yeah. Obviously, that was a learning experience for you. And it sounds like you were pretty patient going into it. But do you feel like you have more patience now or less patience? I definitely have more patience than I did then. You know, I I wasn't someone who believed in incrementalism, but I understand the value thereof. I'm not ready to, you know, what's the what's the quote? I always screw it up, but you don't want to throw out so anyway, I can't. I, oh, I'm, uh, I'm, not, never let the, perfection be the enemy of the good. There you go. You got it. <laughs> anyway, um, I've learned that incrementalism, if we're going in the right direction, will get you there eventually. Mm-hmm. And that helps me with my resolve to continue to try to fight to get things done. So what surprised you most entering the South Carolina legislature as a young politician? How worthless a lot of politicians are. You know, I really thought that there was this uniformity in service. Because, I mean, you literally have to, like, choose to do it and put your name on a ballot and then go out and run an election and have people vote for you. It's a cumbersome process to get there. 
And there were a lot of people who were there just to be there. Democrats and Republicans, black and white. I could never wrap my head around the fact that you were just there to be there. I always laugh and joke with folk and say, when I first got elected, I would look up at the ceiling. I'd be like, I cannot believe I'm here. And then after about like a month, I'd be like, I can't believe you're here. I can't (laughs) believe you're here. Um, So that was probably my biggest disappointment was just the absence of public service oriented people. Do you think that was from a sense of complacency or entitlement or where do you think all, all of the above mm. and the fact that we don't pay our elected officials enough, which is a random kind of unpopular view. I mean, in South Carolina, our our salary was ten thousand six hundred dollars a year. I mean, it still is. I mean, you, you pay for what you get in mm. a lot of places. It's hard to. And that's why, the, you know, not disparaging the professions, but many times we got retired folk, trial lawyers like myself. Um, people who could afford to do it because you can't have someone who is a teacher or someone mm-hmm. who is a, a plant worker or someone who is, you know, a fireman do that and then come serve in this part-time job, which is really a full-time job yeah. for $10,600 a year. It's just wow. it's not feasible. Do you think the political landscape is more or less divisive than it was in 1968 when your father was arrested? That's an interesting question. I, I didn't think you were going to go back to 68. I thought you were going to go to 2006 when I got elected. Um the answer is the answer is mm, I don't know the answer to that. Is it more or less divisive? Um, it, it's about the same, which is a tragedy, I think. I think that we um, began to rip at the seams January 20th of 2009, which was the inauguration of Barack Obama. Um, I think that the advent of the Tea Party in 2020, the issues we had with race in this country came to the forefront. They became more pronounced recently. And I think that's eerily reminiscent of 1968. I mean, we have to remember, and I, I am very clear eyed about this and very sober about the fact that every ounce of political change we've ever had in this country has been because of black blood that's flowed in the streets. And when you think about that sentiment, you think that in the 60s, but for the images of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, um, the death of, you know, Medgar Evers and, you know, Emmett Till in the mid-50s, you don't have the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. But for the assassination of King, you don't have um, the Fair Housing Act. And we've seen, you know, those similar occurrences. And I thought, you know, after the very, very hot summer where Ahmad, Brianna, and George were, were murdered, you would... Um, get to a point where we were having these conversations about race that proved to be fruitful. But I think that might have been youthful naivete, and I was wrong. Wow. So you talked a little bit about relationships earlier, and and you built a lot of success by fostering relationships that were built by your parents. I think that's something that, um, I think that's something that maybe a lot of people that grew up without means probably have done. (laughs) Um, and maybe people with means, too. I don't know. Um, but can you speak to the new relationships that you build? And one in particular that I was thinking about when writing this question was um, your, and you speak of her as a friend, um, your friendship with, with Nikki Haley. Yeah. I mean, Nikki, she, I think she's mad with me right now. But Well, you can get mad with your friends, I right? know. She always, <laughs> she always gets mad at me about a tweet or something. Um, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott. I mean, this is, it's South Carolina. Uh, we, we have some really interesting bedfellows in South Carolina. Lindsay. When I call on them, they they are, you know, inclined to be helpful if they can. But I understand the politics is very rough and tumble. Um, but we also know I know them. Mm-hmm. You know, I I know them to the point where I disagree with them wholeheartedly on 
on policy ideals, but you know, I think I was in the Washington Post magazine and they were doing a profile on Tim and I said, look, I, the interesting part about my, my relationship with Tim is that I will never vote for Tim Scott, um, but if he needed a kidney, I'd give him one. And I know that's decently um, hyperbolic to some, but or sensationalized is probably a better term, but I think that's where we need to get back to in terms of our political discourse, where you can disagree with folk and still maintain relationships. Yeah, I've certainly been feeling a lot of that lately, I think. <laughs> so, um, and so along those lines, uh, I want to talk with you about the importance of making mistakes. Mm-hmm. On a college campus, I think it's important to create a space where people can make mistakes and then learn from them and, and recover from them, of importantly. Um, and and hopefully do that with some grace, although yeah. I'm not sure I have much grace in the mistakes I was making when I was in college. Um but uh, I, I had the privilege of speaking with Julian Bond about this in 2015, and mm-hmm. I was wondering if I could play his response to my not very well asked question <laughs> <laughs> and then get your response or sure. your reaction to it. It'd so. be good to hear Uncle Julian's voice. <laughs> There's a part of me that wonders if um, just trying to create an environment where it's safe to stumble and fall a little bit, it's safe to mess yes, up. Yes, 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 you have to be ready to make a mistake. And, and and get pick up and, and go ahead and do it again. You know, in 2015, it seemed hard, I think, to find that space for recovery. But there's a part of me that thinks it may even be harder now. It is harder now. By the way, you were really, really, really youthful in your voice. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what's 16 year old is asking this question? Um, well, let's not talk about how I sound now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I think that um, first of all, I don't necessarily believe in cancel culture. I think that's a myth perpetrated by a lot of my friends in the media. I think there's such thing as consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, you can say something extremely stupid, racist, xenophobic. You know, you have the freedom to say it. We also have the freedom to. And so uh, you're not free from consequence. So right. that, that's that's first. But I don't think we allow for forgiveness and grace and people to evolve and learn. I think that sometimes when somebody does something stupid or ignorant, you know, when you look at it, it's not necessarily the the country music singer who, you know, says nigger all the time, right? That's not necessarily what I'm talking about. But I am talking about when clips emerge from somebody talking 15 years ago and you want to cancel them today. I'm like, well, let's look at what happened over the last 15 years. Let's apply some grace through the lens that we're looking and let's see how much they've evolved. I mean, if they're the same that they were when they said it, then that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But you know, none of us are the same person we were 15 years ago. And I think that we have to show people the same grace. And that's the two points I made. That's, that's part of the problem we have right now is that people want grace, but they don't want to give it. And then the other is, and and it's a political um, lesson, I guess. And it's something I tell people who want to get involved in the political process, which is, um, being a pastor and a politician are the only two professions where people expect more from you than they expect from themselves. And you have to understand that going into it. And so many times if in politics, there is a, a higher bar, a threshold. Um, regardless, though, we should all give people some grace and uh, allow people to be forgiven for transgressions. Bakari Sellers, I have one more question for you. Sure. Um, but before I ask you, I, I want to thank you for your time um, with me here today. You didn't have to do this. I appreciate you no, stopping I'm in. I'm glad to do this. This is amazing. I'm 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 all about podcasting united. You know, everybody, all the podcasters across the world need to come together and 
and form a super group. I, <laughs> I, I appreciate what you do here. Well, thank you very much. Um, and your next step is to speak before an audience of students who are not much younger than you were when you <laughs> ran for office and, yeah. and landed a seat in the South Carolina legislature. It's really incredible to think about. You were hopeful then, excited about the future and the change that you could bring. Can you talk about what gives you hope now? My children, you know, you know, looking at Sadie and Stokely at three years old, whenever you get down, you see that you have to live for them. And, um, you know, it's a different type of love. It's a different type of heart flutter. It's a different type of anxiety and worry. And you just want to make sure that you are leaving them a better world than the one you inherited. And as we sit here today, you realize that you got a lot of work to do. Um, and maybe, maybe in their generation, maybe one day they'll be free. Well, thank you so much for your time, sir. I certainly appreciate you being here and I hope that the rest of your stay is great. No, thank you for your preparedness and thoroughness in this interview. That's amazing. And it was good to hear Uncle Julian's voice. Yeah. Well, when I read your book and actually I listened to it, so it was really great to hear your voice. I had a really good time doing that. And, uh, I thought, wow, you know, this is an opportunity to, that was Really, an incredible moment for yeah, me no, to, to speak with him. He's an amazing person. All right, thank you so and much. As are you. Thank oh, you so I'm much. At it. Right. <laughs> Appreciate you. Today's show was written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our web team is Pete Montaldi, Alex Waterworth, and Derek Wyckoff. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks, with assistance from Wes Craig. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications Team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes.